Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our new series through the life and ministry of Jesus, a series that will culminate with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus at Easter. This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Indeed, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now this past Thursday I read about the renovation and reopening of a section in the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. A reopening, a renovation in the Museum of Fine Art in Boston of a particular section. Prior to 2019, the museum had assembled all of its collection of fine arts and sculpture into one place. So you could have been going there and beside a 4,000 year old Egyptian bust, you would find a first century Greco-Roman piece. It was just kind of a mishmash of ancient Art. But now, after the renovation, all of the Greco-Roman art and sculptures and whatnot of the same time period, it's together. It's to give you the idea, if that's possible, of what it would be like of living or walking into a first century temple in the Roman Empire. It's intended to kind of convey that kind of feeling. Well, I just read about another piece that I think they should try to acquire. Very interesting. It's a two-part stone tablet that was found or originally located in western Turkey or near the city of Ephesus, okay? That two-part stone tablet is now housed in the Berlin, Berlin Museum of Fine Art and it reads as follows. Two-part stone tablet, this thing was cut. It was originally engraved in 9 B.C., Found in western Turkey, found near the city that we would understand biblically of Ephesus. 
Here's what the inscription reads. Caesar Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. The gospel being the word euangelion. Now what we learn from this is that the term good news or gospel was a term that predated Jesus. It was a political term, a political term reserved for world-changing events, world-changing people in use long before Jesus. That backdrop helps us to understand what Mark is doing in the first few verses of his gospel. Okay? Look at the text. Look at how he starts this book. This book is a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. Look at the first verse, how Mark starts off. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what Mark is doing is he is taking a well-known cultural term, redefining it, infusing it, with its new meaning, its fuller meaning, its most accurate meaning, okay? He's presenting to the reader, whoever that might be, he's presenting Jesus of Nazareth and his birth. He's treating that as the true good news, okay? The true divine king who would bring true salvation to the world. It's hard for us to imagine or relate to, because we're so far removed from this context. This would have been an incredibly provocative beginning to a book about the life and ministry of Jesus. It would have been a thinly veiled or not so veiled challenge to the gospel of Rome. The true gospel doesn't relate to the birth of Caesar Augustus. The true gospel relates to Jesus the Christ. That was a bold and dangerous claim. I would submit to you in just the first 11 verses of this first of the four Gospels written, the first 11 verses of people's first access to Jesus of Nazareth was the most exalted presentation of Jesus possible. I'll explain how that is. We're going to look at that. But before we do, it's interesting to consider, I think it's very interesting to consider, just who is Mark? Who is Mark, the author of this gospel? Who was he? What do we know about him? How would have he had the credentials to write such a thing? It's fascinating when you do some research. Now, the universal testimony of the early church fathers, without exception, is that the writer of this gospel is John Mark. So, you know, attribution is this is the gospel of Mark, but it really refers to John Mark, okay? 
Do you remember a little Bible trivia? Where do we first hear about a person named John Mark? When you look at the full testimony of the New Testament and you take it together and you kind of piece together who this person was, it is fascinating, it's encouraging, and you understand exactly why John Mark was in a position uniquely to do this. We first hear about John Mark in the context of the book of Acts in chapter 12. Peter was arrested. Peter gets delivered by an angel. And if you remember that story, Peter's kind of wandering around. He's waking up. He's kind of disoriented. When he comes to his senses, where does Peter go? Little trivia question. Peter goes to a home in Jerusalem where the early church was meeting. Luke tells us that it was a home of a woman named Mary whose son was John Mark. Just that information tells us a lot about him. Not everybody could write Greek, could read Greek and write Greek. That was reserved for a few people, people of the wealthier or more educated of the Jewish class. And for Mary, to have the kind of home that could host the early church gives us an indication she was probably a woman of means. She has a son named John Mark. Okay, we can read from this and from Mark's gospel. He's constantly around the early church. He is constantly around the apostles. He would have had the background where he would have been able to read and write Koine Greek. Question for you, later in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they're getting ready to set out on the first missionary journey. They need some help. Of all of the people of the early church that they could have asked to join them, who do they ask? They asked John Mark. In Acts 13, it indicates John Mark was their assistant. That was a word that would indicate like he has something to bring to the table. He wasn't just like carrying their bags. John Mark was probably capable language-wise, to help them in their missionary journey, okay? 1 Peter 5, kind of end of Peter's ministry or at that point in his life. Who was assisting Peter? John Mark, who he called my son, okay? Early church historian Eusebius writes the following about the origin of the gospel of Mark. Why was it that this story was written down? What you're going to see is that, or you're going to hear from Eusebius, Peter had this ministry that we know that he had in Rome. And what Peter's doing is he's preaching the gospel, sharing stories, preaching the gospel, sharing stories. Well, guess who his assistant was, according to Eusebius? John Mark. And so what John Mark would do is he would hear what Peter was preaching and he would write it down. And he wrote it down in Greek. And let me just read you this quote from Eusebius. The gospel according to Mark had this occasion. It was brought about in this way. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered his sayings, should write them down. 
And having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who requested it. We have another source that indicated that the people kind of pestered John Mark. Write it down, please. Write it down, please. And he eventually did. So what we have in the gospel of Mark, we have the memoir of Peter. Okay? John Mark is writing down what he had heard Peter preach year after year. I think that's stunning. So even though John Mark is not an apostle, he's Peter's assistant hearing it every day. Just blows my mind. This, in many ways, is the gospel of Peter. Translated, written through Mark. Mark focuses on three things in verses 1 through 11. Three things I want to briefly consider this morning. More specifically, three titles that Mark uses in association with Jesus. So, you know, like within sports, like so last night if you watched the, the Green Bay, San Francisco game, you know that San Francisco came slow out of the gate, okay? Troy Aikman kept commentating how slow San Francisco was coming out of the gate, and then they got better and better. Mark does not come out of the gate slow, okay? Mark comes out of the gate firing on all cylinders, you know, trying to present who Jesus is without any ambiguity. He confers three titles upon Jesus right off the bat. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. I would submit to you that gets lost in translation. We're not wowed when we read that, okay, because it was like culturally specific to its time. We're 2,000 years removed. It's hard for us to appreciate what that means, that Mark calls Jesus the Christ. He calls Jesus the Son of God. He also views Jesus as Yahweh God Almighty. Okay, let's briefly look at those three things. He calls Jesus the Christ. Look at verse 1 of the text. Here's how he starts it out. I mean, this is provocative, my friends. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, okay? Christ is his title. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Do you know where that word comes from? The first century reader, the original readers of Mark's gospel would have understood the significance, the import of that title. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. The Greek word Christos comes from a Hebrew word. What Hebrew word does the Greek word Christos come from? The Hebrew term it comes from is Meshua or Messiah. And so, the word Christ refers to the Old Testament concept of Messiah, okay? In the context of the Old Testament, David and all of his heirs as king were viewed as God's anointed. The definition of Messiah is God's anointed, okay? All of David's sons, David himself and all of his sons were viewed as messiahs of a kind. Now, we read back into that meaning that it didn't initially have. David and his heirs were God's exalted kings, if you will. They were God's messiahs. They were the defender and protectors of the people. But 
in the context of the Old Testament, it predicts and prophesies a capital M Messiah that would come. One of David's ultimate sons. And so you had these kings who were anointed. They were messiahs with a lowercase m. And then the Old Testament has in view a capital M Messiah who was going to be able to do what none of those others could do. Mark is saying, he's the one. He is the Christ. He is the son of David that the Old Testament has been anticipating. The Jews such, had such a high view of Messiah that that's why they rejected Jesus initially. He gets um, crucified and publicly humiliated and in the minds of Jews that disqualified Jesus. By the end of Mark's gospel, he's going to explain why that actually qualifies Jesus to be the Mashua, the true Messiah. He's the king. Caesar's not the king. Jesus is the Christ. Like, I can't convey to you. It's because we're not in this context. This was a massive claim. This was infused with a tremendous amount of meaning. He's the Christ. He's who we've all been waiting for. And of course, all kings in the ancient Near East, kings of significance, they would have a herald who would announce their arrival at this city or that city. And so if ancient Near Eastern kings had a herald, what do you think the king of kings was going to need? That's the role that John the Baptist plays, okay? If you think about it, why is John the Baptist even in the story? What role does he play? Well, he's the herald. He's the one that announces to the world that the Christ is here. And if you understand who John the Baptist was in biblical history, that should blow our minds. Do you remember how Jesus refers to John the Baptist? He's the greatest person born among women. Like he was the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. So John the Baptist is viewed in the Bible as being the last and the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Better than Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah is John the Baptist. He is the most significant of them all. And how did he refer to Jesus in Mark 1? He said, this Christ is so great, I'm not worthy to do what? To untie the laces on his sandals. In the Talmud, this, this Jewish source, slaves were not required to untie the laces on someone's sandals. It was viewed to be that low of a job. The greatest figure of the entire Old Testament, John the Baptist, indicates he's not worthy to do something even like that. That's how great Jesus of Nazareth is. He's the Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie the laces on his sandals. It, it's hard to get more exalted than this, but he's going to. The next title, he doesn't only call him the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one. In other words, the Messiah of God. He's also the son of God. And if you're like me, like the modern reader, like that doesn't sound that impressive, right? Like if it would have said he's God, okay, we would have been impressed by that. You know, that's how some cults kind of try to say that Jesus isn't God because he's the son of God and the son of God is less than God. And so in some ways we're not impressed by that. But once you understand the context of that title, 
you'll understand how significant it was. In the context of the Old Testament, there were like, the word son of God was really elevated with respect to three different people. Adam, the archetype of all of humanity, was viewed as the son of God. The son of God from whom everyone else came. He's the archetypal son of God, the representative of all mankind. Next you have God's adopted son, the nation of Israel, okay? Pharaoh claimed his son was a God. Pharaoh claimed that he was giving birth to the son of God. And in the context of the Exodus, Yahweh God Almighty says, no, 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 no. Israel, this is my adopted son. I'm going to save my adopted son. I'm going to put my imprimatur on my adopted son. Israel becomes the son of God. And then David, when he becomes the anointed, when he becomes the Meshua, when he becomes an anointed king, that's when he becomes begotten of God. That's when he enjoys the status of sonship. He was the adopted son of God, Adam, Israel, then David. Jesus is the culmination and the fullness of them all. Jesus is the son of God in the fullest sense of the term. The Bible calls him the firstborn. That doesn't mean that he was, there was a time when he was not. He's the firstborn. The firstborn was the exalted one in the family. That's who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the son of God in all of these ways. Just look at the text. This is really amazing when you think about it. Very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what? The son of God. Look at verse 11. Look at how this text is bracketed. What does God the Father say to Jesus at this baptism? A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That son of God title, it brackets the section. It brackets the book. Very first verse, Jesus Christ, the son of God. What does the centurion recognize about Jesus at the very end of Mark? Do you remember what the centurion said? Surely this was what? The son of God. We should never think of that as a lesser title. Jesus Christ is the exalted son of God. And then last but not least, and I really need you to put your thinking caps on here. This is what wows perhaps more than any of these. He's not just the Christ. He's not just the son of God. He is actually Yahweh God Almighty himself. And he, and, and what's fascinating is the way that Mark takes two Old Testament quotes and applies them to Jesus. Let's look at that and then we'll, we'll land the plane. But you need to think with me. What Mark's going to do before we read it, Mark's going to use what we call a composite quote. Mark's going to take Two different quotes from the Old Testament. Fuse it together in one. It was not uncommon with composite quotations to only give attribution to the more significant author. Okay? This was not just biblically true. This was true in ancient Near Eastern literature. So, for example, Mark is going to quote from Isaiah 
and Malachi. He's actually going to quote from Malachi first. But he only gives attribution to Isaiah. So you may think, well, did he, did he forget about Malachi? You know, is he making a mistake? No. When they would do composite quotations, two quotations, and they brought it together, they would give attribution to the more prominent author. Isaiah was viewed to be a more prominent prophet, more well-known than Malachi. So with that said, let's look. In your bulletin, Mark 1, verses 1 through 3, this is perhaps the greatest claim that had ever been made regarding Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So, where the quote starts, he's now quoting from Malachi 3.1. He's not quoting from Isaiah here. He's quoting from Malachi 3.1. Quote, this is from Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Okay, let's stop there. Guess what Mark did? Do you know what Mark did? Okay, I'm going to read from Malachi 3.1. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open it to Malachi 3.1. I'm going to also read. Let me read to you a quote from Malachi 3.1. This is God, Yahweh God Almighty, promising that before he comes, he's going to send his messenger to prepare the way. So the Old Testament prophesies that a herald's going to come and make an announcement before God comes. That's what Nate quoted in our confession of faith. Isaiah 40 is God, Yahweh, Yahweh saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm going to make things right. You should be comforted by this. And there's going to be one calling out from the desert, preparing the way. So here we go, Malachi 3.1. I can tell you this, I did not, so I can remember being in class, in seminary, in my gospels class, I had never heard this. When this was explained to me, my jaw hit the floor. I had never considered it. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, this is Yahweh speaking. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. What pronoun is there? Me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. Yahweh says, I'm coming. Let's look at Mark's quote. Second half of verse two. Behold, I send my messenger, change the pronoun, before your face. Who is the pronoun in Mark referring to? We'll just make sure you're awake now. Take a drink of your coffee. This is extremely important. How does Mark change the quote? He changes the pronoun. In Malachi, Yahweh says, I'm sending my messenger before me. Mark says, I'm sending my messenger before you. Who is the you referring to? Jesus is always a good answer. Jesus do you understand what Mark is saying? Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He is Yahweh God Almighty. That is who John the Baptist is preparing the way for. Yahweh God Almighty. I mean, the, like I've, I said in Sunday school a few weeks ago, this is the last thing the Jews would have ever just made up. 
You would never confer the status of Yahweh God Almighty on a person. That was anathema to the Jews unless it was true. And it is true. That's who he is. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is Yahweh God Almighty. And he is capable of helping us in our time of need. I'll just end with that quote from Spurgeon. We don't have enough time to extrapolate all that this means. This is one of those sermons where you just, you're just amazed at what Luke is saying about Jesus. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Listen to this. Hear the Lord Jesus speak to each of us. I will help you. It is but a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Help you, it's the least thing I'll ever do for you. Before the world began, I chose you. I laid aside my glory and became a man for you. I gave my life for you. If you needed a thousand times as much help, I would give it to you. I will help you. The God that is presented in Mark 1, the Lord Jesus Christ, is able to help us. And so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are amazed at what is being claimed here. At, 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 what, at how Mark is, 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 is presenting Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of God, Yahweh God Almighty. Whereas John the Baptist would baptize with water, this one, this Lord Jesus, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He would cleanse us and renew us and give us new life. We thank you for him. We praise you for him. Father, we pray that our view of him would be expanded such that we would give him all of the honor and the glory and the worship that he deserves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.